I want to talk to you about courage today. And I want to put a disclaimer at the head of this word. In light of especially what I just prayed, I just realized what I just prayed, that you do not hear anything I'm about to share in a spirit of condemnation. I'm telling you right now, if that voice begins to settle in and you hear a voice say, well, I'm just a coward, reject that voice. If you failed in some way to exhibit courage at a moment that there was a need for something requiring courage, reject the voice for the next 45 minutes or however long I end up yapping at you. Reject that voice because you are courageous. You know how I know that? How many of you have Christ in you? That's only a half rhetorical question. You're going to make me preach the gospel. There was a man named Jesus. You go, I mean, I'm going to back up. You are courageous. You know why? Because if you have Christ in you, you have the lion of the tribe of Judah on the inside of you. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Only the wicked flee when they have nothing to be afraid of. You are not wicked. You are a saint. You are not a sinner saved by grace. You once were a sinner. You got saved by grace. Now you are a saint. You are courageous. In fact, you know I don't often do this because I feel it could be a little manipulative, but today I don't care. Just say, I am courageous. courageous. That didn't sound like it. You know, there's a moment, I can't recommend the movie because it's rated R, and actually there's some scenes in it that actually cross the line into outright pornography rated X, but it's the movie 300. It's about the Spartans stand against the armies of Persia where 300 men stood their ground and for a little while at least pushed back the enemy. And these 300 men, there's this glorious scene that's really ministered to me as a pastor. And it's a scene where the king of Athens has a huge army, thousands of soldiers, and he's going to meet up together with the king of Sparta, and they're going to go to war together. And the king of Athens has thousands of men behind him. Here shows up the king of Sparta, half naked. I don't know, I guess they're really dressed like that. I'd personally want to be more covered up if they were going to be shooting arrows at me, but I mean, all these guys are bodybuilders and they looked great. But he's got these 300 Spartans behind him and the king of Athens said to him, my friend, I thought we were going to war. I'm paraphrasing. I thought we were going to war together. I thought you took this seriously. I thought Sparta would at least take seriously the enemy that's at hand. Then the king, uh, King Leonidas of the Spartans starts calling out to the Athenian soldiers and he goes to one of them, sir, what are you? And he goes, I'm a potter. And what are you? Well, I'm a farmer. And what are you? I'm a philosopher. And he turns around to his men and he says, Spartans! What are you? And in unison, 300 mighty men. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And he turns around to, his, to the king of the Athenians. He said, you see, my friend, I brought more soldiers. Man, that moves me a lot more than it moves you. I can see that right now. So how many of you are courageous? That's a little bit better, a little bit better. Who? That's what I was hoping somebody, thank you. Who? There is something about the sound of a bunch of men. You ever go to a football game? I mean like a real adult football game. I I remember the first football game I went to was a Jets game. That was back in the 80s when the Jets were still pretty good. (laughs) Don't judge me. I went. I remember we got there, it was called the Meadowlands back then. I didn't understand why we were going to watch a New York team and we had to go to New Jersey to watch the game. That bothered me more than a little bit, but I went and we watched this game. I remember we got to the parking lot, we got there late, 
And from outside the stadium, something awesome happened inside. I don't know what it was, but this massive, I mean, it's just tens of thousands, not even as many as there are at a Penn State game. Tens of thousands of men shouting because of what just happened on the football field. And it sent shivers up my spine. I said, whoa, I'd love to be in the middle of a group of men shouting like that. And there's something about courage that stirs everything up on the inside. There is something about an, an exhibition of courage that moves everybody, so much so that the most common stories told throughout history are the stories of people that were courageous when the world needed them to be, or when their neighbor needed them to be, when their family needed them to be. People who exhibited that spirit of courage, those are the stories that we wanna tell over and over again. I wanna tell you just, I used to be a folklore major, don't judge me. Uh, it was a blow-off major. It, uh, all the like organic chemistry for pre-med was interfering with my drinking schedule at that stage of my BC days. And so I said, literature, I like to read, and folklore, that sounds like the easiest one of them all. It was Jehovah Sneaky setting up a testimony to draw me back to himself and give me sermon fodder, which I had no idea. Why am I telling you this? Because what I learned in that was that stories told over and over again always reflect the values of the people that tell them. The stories that you hear again and again, the things that move the heart, the things that you could hear 20 times over and it still doesn't feel like it gets old. Not like dad jokes. I mean, it feels like you're just stirred every time you hear it. The most common kinds of stories that get told again and again and again are stories of courage. You are courageous. You may not make headline news. We may never be known outside of the immediate confines of those we're in direct relationship with for what we do. But I wanna tell you that every last one of us has opportunity to fill this world with the lion of the tribe of Judah by the way we live our lives. Winston Churchill had a great, so many great things to say about courage. And you talk about a man who stood his ground and was courageous, literally single-handedly rallied the entirety of the British people, a mighty noble people, if I might say so, unbiased opinion. My Lockhart Scottish blood gets stirred at this moment when Winston Churchill gave his famous speech, you know, we'll fight them in the streets, we'll fight, you know, all that. He rallied a nation that was outnumbered, overwhelmed ready to collapse and shrink into fear. And he rallied them to turn the whole world to finally push back the scourge of the Third Reich. And he, he said this about courage. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but it's the form of which every virtue takes at its testing point. In other words, you find out what you really believe in when courage is required. So if you love something, you love your family, you love your children, when there's an enemy coming that's gonna destroy it, you find out courage manifests, why? Because I love my family and I'll lay down my life for them, I'll take a bullet for them any day of the week. I will do things that I never would have done before because the virtue of love requires courage of me right now. The courage to stand your ground and to say there's enough of a slide right now. I care about, let's say, our nation right now. I care too much about this nation, this place that I love and that I live in. And if you don't love it and, and you don't love living in it, then you need to travel somewhere. I'll take you to some places. You'll kiss the ground when you get back to the airport. But there's something because of a value for the, the experiment, the holy experiment that is the United States that ought to stir the heart of every American and surely ought 
ought to stir the heart of every Christian American who doesn't take for granted what we've got in this place, that we say, yeah, that is worth fighting for. I will exhibit courage right now because I value this thing so much. That's what courage is all about. Courage is that thing that says, I value something to the point that I will even sacrifice my life to protect it. That's when courage comes into its own. It's the testing point, it's what gets revealed, it's what reveals our true value. Somebody said, if you find out what's worth living for by what you believe is worth dying for. And we sit on the shoulders right now of the most courageous generation who's ever walked the face of the earth. Because the church of the first century was required by virtue of the age that they lived in to be this ragtag bunch of social rejects, those who'd come to Christ for forgiveness, those who were required now not to by force of arms overthrow the mightiest empire that had ever been to date, that being Rome, but were required to do it with only the weapon of love not to pick up arms, not to join the zealots or some other rebellious group that was gonna overthrow Rome somehow, but rather to live unarmed, to be completely vulnerable in the middle of it, extending love, blessing those who curse them, to continue to be a bright and shining light when the church of the first century in the context of the book of Revelation, which I'll read to you in a moment, was required to just offer a pinch of incense and say, Nero is Lord, The Lord said to them, by his word, you pronounce boldly and publicly and courageously, Jesus is Lord. In whose name are you doing things? The Sanhedrin frowned at the apostles when they they made that man walk and leap and praise God. By whose name are you doing things? By the name of Jesus. Well, don't ever use that name again. Oh, You choose and do you tell me what you would do? Should we obey you or should we obey God? Moments of truth require courage and required a generation of what I'm about to read to you. If just imagine if the first generation, there were only first 120, 120, a seed, a mustard seed worth of people and and the whole expanse of all of who lived in that day. Just a mustard seed of people that were given a gospel of good news. And what's their message? God loves you, turn your heart to him, repent and turn toward him, and he'll give you life in that more abundantly. Go and preach that message. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves, sign me up. That generation, that's what was laid on them. Had they not been faithful in their day, we would not be sitting in this building right now. There would be no United States of America, by the way, if it weren't for the courage of those people. There would be no women's rights, there would be no rights for children, there would still be hunger like they had in the first century, there would still be plagues like there were in the first century, the world would not be what it is today. Not just people sitting in church buildings, but I'm talking about the world now has never been the same. Not since Alexander Hamilton, you know that musical, but since Jesus Christ and since his followers, those apostles, those first disciples stood their ground and exhibited such courage like the world has never seen before or since. We sit on their shoulders and we have the same spirit on the inside of us right now. So here's what the Lord said. And you know, the revelation is primarily a letter written to seven churches, real churches in the first century who were experiencing persecution. Most likely 99 out of 100% sure it was during Nero's persecution. 
These are people who literally were being put in arenas and being torn apart by wild animals who were threatened that if you don't say Nero is Lord and stop saying Jesus is Lord, we're gonna hang you up on a cross, we're gonna put you on pyres and light you on fire and burn you alive. We're gonna do horrific things to you. It's like the original terrorist organization to try to blot out the church. That's the context behind the letter to the seven churches that, that received revelation. But what God, what God said to him, and I, I just stumbled a few weeks ago, I was on this, and I've been kind of brewing on it, because you know the topic of courage is huge. There are thousands of books written about courage. I could tell you 100,000 stories, and you could add to that of people who exhibited courage in an hour where the world needed them. But I wanna talk to you about the simple acts of courage that each of us, each and every day, first of all, and simply by standing our ground, what we're required of the Lord to be, so he said to them, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Sign me up, right? Man, water from the river of life, it never dries up. That's my soul gets filled. My spirit comes alive. Everything in me feels like I just got born again for the first time all over again. I'm full of joy. I'm full of peace. Everything's good all around me. That's what it means to drink from the river of life. Well, then he goes on. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I'll be his God. He will be my son. Overcomes what? Overcomes what? Do you know there's never been a generation in all of God's history that he held his people accountable for failure to turn a culture or a government or a foreign nation around to serve the living God. He's never once held somebody to account for failing to convert somebody that we're ministering to. He's never held people to account for those kind of things. So what is it that we're overcoming? We're overcoming the fear that would make us shrink back. What are we overcoming? What were they overcoming? They were overcoming the fear. And remember, these are guys that didn't have 2,000 years of church history to see what would be the fruit and the outcome of their efforts. For all they knew, if Jesus was a false prophet and we put our hopes in some Messiah, zealot, you know, who, who just, you know, he had a death wish or something like that, we just wasted our lives on nothing. They had to contend with that. They didn't even have the scriptures yet. They had some letters maybe from Paul or John or James, but they didn't have a New Testament with all the testimony of Jesus. They heard some stories of Jesus, but hadn't really maybe even seen a gospel that we get to read today. He who overcomes the fear, the desire to shrink back, the, the urge to protect oneself rather than move forward and advance as courageous ones to see this gospel of the kingdom go to the ends of the earth. So overcomes these things, I'll be as God, he'll be my son, but to the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers, adulterers and liars, they're part of being the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I remember reading over this and it was one of those, you know, you read scriptures and you see some things and then something just hits you really hard like a ton of bricks and you stop on it. And I, you know, I've taught Revelation before, I've read the book a bunch of times, but this time I felt like the Lord stopped me on the word, but the cowardly. I thought, man, that's a harsh word because you just numbered the cowardly with the unbelieving, with murderers, sorcerers. Man, I'm like a witch doctor, cowardly. And I, I wanna put this out there and just suggest something to you. Cowardly does not mean that every once in a while we exhibit cowardice. 
Do you understand when the scripture uses a label like that? If, if, say, right now in your mind, you're thinking of all the times that you failed to step out because you were afraid to do something, that didn't make you a coward. Amen? We're not sinners again because sometimes we sin. And we're not cowards because sometimes we act in a cowardly manner. I just felt the need to make sure you know that. Cowardly simply means I'm not living for the Lord. I have no desire to join forces together with the kingdom of heaven. I will shrink back. I'll stay partnered with whatever spirit rules the age. In other words, I'm, I'm out. Don't count me in, Jesus, on this kingdom work that you're doing. I'm just gonna go live my own life. Thank you very much. And I want nothing to do with this kingdom of yours. That's what cowardly refers to. And that's why there in Revelation said, well, that, that's who's outside the gate. Now, do we judge them? Of course not. And I hope right now, I'm gonna say it again, and maybe I'll just say it every two minutes, just to make sure the enemy doesn't sneak in while I'm sharing this with you today. That just because we've shrunk back at times, and just because maybe today, you may even hear what I'm saying, say, man, I've never done a courageous thing in my life. I wanna tell you right now that you did a courageous thing the day you asked Jesus to be your Lord and to say you're my Lord and you're my God. You know why? Because you were willing to say, as I did and as all of us who've come to Christ did, everything I used to know was wrong. Everything I thought made me awesome was wrong. And now I recognize I need Jesus for everything with my life. That took courage. Some of you lost friends, as I did, as a result of that decision. Some of you had a change of life that meant nothing you used to do even would work anymore. It was going out into the wild unknown together with Jesus. It took courage to say, I was wrong. I have nothing to offer heaven but throw myself at the mercy of Jesus at the cross. That took courage. So yes, you have already done something courageous, even if you can't put a list together of all the times you overcame fear and expressed love, because ultimately courage is just the ultimate expression of love. That's what courage really comes down to. Why do people do courageous things? Because they love something and it compels them to act, to protect, to defend to do something that would risk myself for the sake of somebody else's benefit. That's what courage is all about. Courage is the ultimate expression of love. It rejects self-preservation, which is one of the most base carnal expressions. It's what most of our carnal reflexes are about, right? Fight, flight, or free, flee. That was tough. Freeze, fight, flight, flight and flee are the same thing, aren't they? Freeze is the other one. Self-preservation. It's instinctive to our carnal nature, but in Christ we're new creations, we're not like that anymore. You are courageous now. We are the company of the courageous. We have rejected self-preservation. We've already said, Jesus picked up his cross, I'm picking up my cross. I'm not preserving or loving my life, because he said I'll lose it if that's how I live. No, I'm picking up my cross too, just like he did his, which also is the most courageous act in all human history. Jesus picking up the cross required more courage than pick your favorite moment in any war movie you've ever watched. Braveheart standing in front of the armies, that took courage to go up against 
all of those things, I just had a thousand movie clips in my head, all of those moments that we tend to glorify and we tell stories about over and over again, they took courage. But Jesus going and dying on that cross took more courage than anything anybody has ever done. Cowardice means we choose ourselves over others. So moments that we all exhibit cowardice is not a one among us who hasn't. And yes, I'm including me in that equation. Moments of cowardice means I'm choosing myself over others. And the reason why I feel so awful is as I was sharing with you last week, we have a conscience, we've been made in the image of God. It's a residue of that that we have right and wrong, even if we never heard the name Jesus, never read the Bible, never had any law. There's certain things that cross all people groups that everyone agrees, that's right, that's wrong. Why? Because we have a conscience. We've been made in the image of God from whose heart emanates all law. So we've been made in that. It's not in our nature to choose ourselves over someone else and exhibit cowardice. That's not who we are. And the reason why it feels so bad when we do that, when we miss that opportunity to express love somehow to that angry coworker, to, to minister Christ, you know, we've, we've all at times demonstrated being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ by not sharing it in moments because of fear, because of the, what might happen as a result of our sharing. Maybe I'll be a social outcast now. I won't fit in with the other cool kids at school or in my workplace now. I'm gonna be known as that Jesus freak now if I'm public with my faith. All of us have had moments where we shrunk back on it. And the reason why it bothers us is a good sign. It's not in our nature. God has not given us a spirit of timidity. He's given us a spirit of power. Everybody think courage, yeah, that takes power. Courage takes discipline, but what about love? The opposite of timidity is love. The opposite of fear is love. The thing that promotes cowardice in our lives, that lack of love, the opposite is also true. You know, apathy actually is the most insidious form of cowardice. It's like, that means something that hides below the surface. It is cowardice, but it hides below the surface and it kind of sneaks around. And I would suggest in the body of Christ, the most common form of cowardice is apathy. And here's why. It, it's, it represents a conscience that's been seared because in us is Christ. In us is Jesus, the good shepherd. In us is the one who doesn't, who's not willing that any should perish. We have that stirring up on the inside of us. In fact, it's hardwired into our DNA to desire to express love, the desire to protect, the desire to help. It's on the inside of every human being, unless somehow, either through life circumstances, through our decisions, through our worldview, our beliefs, we sear our conscience off. And we say, basically, we don't say it out loud, but I don't care. I don't care if that one's hurting or broken. I don't care if that one, you know, whatever happens to their lives, that's on them. I don't care about that anymore. Not caring is, is the end result of what happens when we sear our conscience because we've been afraid to act. And so that, you know, you can't live I shared with you last week, a seared conscience is because we have to shut down the feeling there because we can't live with ourselves being opposite of what our conscience is. We can't live that dichotomy of living one way when our conscience says to live a different way. And that's what apathy is. It fails to act just simply because of the fear of being made uncomfortable. And that's not anyone, anyone numbered among the saints of God. That's not who we are. There was a famous murder case in um, 1964, 
that happened in Kew Gardens in Queens. And I learned some things. I was sharing this with the staff the other day and I went back because I had to brush up on the details. It became a famous case, the New York Times. You think they were involved in exaggerating or fake news now? 1964, what I found out was the story went and it's been told in workshops. It's where I learned it. Workshops about, um, the crowd, what's it called? The crowd effect or the stand, past stand, stander by, bystander syndrome. <laughs> Bystander syndrome, the thing that causes people not to act to meet a need because they think somebody else will take care of that. Namayab, that's not my responsibility, somebody else will take care of that, what's in front of me. So Kitty Genovese was a bartender, lived in Kew Gardens. This is the street where the murder happened, 1964. The New York Times told the story back when it happened that there were 38 people who watched from their windows on, for hours on end while this woman tried to flee her attacker who was trying to stab her to death. He did end up succeeding. Nobody called the police. I, I didn't realize this, but 911 didn't exist then. You had to know the, uh, the number of the police station before 1968. That was a good year. Before then, there was no 911 in America, but nobody called the police was the story. Not true. Thank you, New York Times. You got it wrong again a long time ago. Actually, what did happen, though, is there were two witnesses to it. So that two people became the whole neighborhood was shamed for failing to act to help this woman. But two people, one of them, after she was stabbed by her attacker, she was being chased, rather, leaned out his window. It was 2.30 in the morning. Kew Gardens, by the way, is a really high-end neighborhood in New York City. It's like a millionaire. It always has been a really wealthy area, right next to the neighborhood where Donald Trump grew up. Really wealthy neighborhood. And, um, you know, uh, so one guy leaned out the window and said, hey, leave that girl alone. So the attacker ran off. She'd been stabbed already, but he, that's it. He went back inside his house, went back to sleep leaving this woman bleeding on the sidewalk right outside his window. 20 minutes later, the attacker came back again and she's screaming for help and somebody else heard it, opened his window and looked out. He went inside and called his friend. He said, hey, what should I do? There's a woman, I think somebody's trying to kill her. She's screaming like crazy and his friend said, hey, you don't wanna get involved with that, man. So he hung up the phone and left her alone. Well, she, she was murdered and that was the end of it. This has been used over and over again as a, a tool of shaming, but I, I want to just, I don't want to shame us with that for the times that we haven't acted, but just to point out that the desire for self-preservation turning into apathy can become such that we become so callous to the need around us. We become so callous to the hurting, the broken, that God brings in our path. How many of you know we don't need to each spend our whole lives going out Finding people that are homeless, finding people, that's a ministry for many. There, we would spend our entire lives just doing that. If, all, if the need was the call, that's all we'd ever do. I'm not suggesting that. But when God brings something right before us, when there is something, there ought to be in the heart of every saint of God, a compulsion, and at least an asking, Lord, is there something I should do about this? Is there something, is this need that you brought my way a call now to me? to share of the goodness of God that I carry, to share the power of God that I have, to share the love of God that I have, to share the peace and the soundness of mind that I have? Is this a call right now? Because cowardice or apathy would say, not my job, it's someone else's. Someone else will take care of this. Or we say, okay, I've got inside of me all the goodness of God, all the kingdom of heaven right now. 
Lord, what are you calling me to do? And I, there's a, a passage in Amos that I've gone to. And as a pastor, I read all the passages about shepherds and I wanted to learn the way of the shepherd. I wanted to understand how shepherds think to try to be the best shepherd I could be. I've still got a long way to go, but I study the scriptures and I get feedback and I try to grow, I try to get better at it. But this one always impressed me and the picture of it's just absolutely gut-wrenching. And it's a word of judgment, by the way. I'll put it in context for you in a moment. But the Lord, thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away. And I want you to just frame this, this picture for a moment. You're a shepherd, and because you love your sheep, let's just, we're good shepherds because we have the good shepherd inside of us. So you're a good shepherd, you're motivated by love for the sheep, you're motivated for love by love for the people that you're caring for, and here comes a lion. And you are wrestling this sheep out of the mouth of the lion as best you can. You are contending for the life of this sheep. Imagine being a shepherd, what a mensch. I'm putting my life in danger right now to try to rescue this sheep. Even when it becomes a lost cause, man, he just comes away with a leg or a piece of an ear, but he's saying, that is my sheep, and I'm not just gonna run, I'm no hireling, I'm not gonna flee right now when the enemy is wreaking havoc on something I love. I'm not gonna exhibit cowardice right now. And in fact, this, this um, verse comes from a practice that would have been well known, that if you were a hired shepherd and you worked for somebody, if a wild animal did come and steal one of the sheep, you had to bring back a part of that sheep to prove, prove to the chief shepherd that you didn't just run away and preserve yourself because you were fired. Obviously, you, you don't want shepherds to go run your whole job. You have one job, you know, you just protect the sheep. So you had to bring back proof. I didn't run away. I did my best to preserve the life and I chased the wolf away, but before I could, he did kill that sheep. That's where the practice comes from. But it's this picture of having such an intense love, such an intense willingness to exhibit courage, to sacrifice even my own life for the sake of somebody else, that I'll come away at the end of the battle pulling away whatever I can. I won't view anybody or anything as a lost cause so long as God's brought it to me and I have the means to protect and defend and exhibit courage, I'm not gonna back down. Are you guys okay? Am I being too intense today? It's a word about courage, I cannot be loud. Courage is not just found though in those big heroic deeds, is it? Those are the stories, those are the ones that we ought to tell, why? Because we wanna provoke courage and one another. We wanna call out the best of what Christ in us has to offer, the most courageous one who's ever walked the planet. It's not just found in the big heroic deeds, but those who did those heroic deeds, courage was already found in them. They had it ready to go when the moment required it. You think of, the, of David. David, he's fresh on my mind because of seeing it at Sight and Sound last night, but David. Long before there was a Goliath, there was a lion and a bear, and probably many other wild animals before that. And he'd already exhibited and learned, out of love for my father's sheep, I will risk my life and protect them from the wild beasts that want to devour them. And so when his moment of truth came, that's what he's most famous for, is killing Goliath. You know, biblical illiteracy is so high right now that two-thirds of people who who are Christians and who say they read the Bible, don't even know that the David who killed Goliath is the same as King David. That's a scary state of affairs. 
Now I get that if you know, you've never been in the Bible before and haven't had a chance to get there yet, that's one thing. But man, you, you're in church and you've grown up in church and you don't even know that the same David that killed Goliath was the David who became king. But that, it was the same guy. How about Daniel and, and the seven men? Long before they stood their ground and refused to bow before that statue Nebuchadnezzar made, they said, look, we're not even gonna eat the king's food because it's not kosher. You know, they, they exhibited courage. They were forced into slavery. I mean, slavery in the palace was a nice option if you had one. They were forced to be slaves in the palace, but they said, we are gonna maintain our separation. Yeah, that makes us outcasts here. It makes us those weird Jews in the middle of this, but they exhibited courage all along so that when the entire nation bowed down, there's like three of them just standing up. That was their moment of truth. They were throwing a fiery furnace for it, but they had courage in them already. You know, the, the apostles all, when they left their homes and they left their jobs, long before they were out there preaching to the risk of their life and limb, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, they already exhibited courage because they had to leave everything they were familiar with. They were at risk. You read the gospels and you, well, you see it if you're watching The Chosen, all the times if Jesus is in danger, they're in danger too. They had learned for three and a half years with Jesus how to stay with him and maintain courage at the, at the potential loss of their life. They already lost their reputation. They were already like, you sure you, this is the right guy? You sure this is the son of God? You're really gonna sell everything for him? They already exhibited all of that. And so courage is first found in those small moments. So let me just share a few thoughts about building a courageous spirit. We want to fan the flames of courage on the inside of us. And there are moments of opportunity, many times we don't even realize that this is a moment to exhibit and therefore build courage. You know, as with all virtues, everything that's good and right and godly, they don't get built in these moments of truth. They get built up and then a moment of truth reveals whether it is in us or not. Like all the fruits of the spirit. How do you know whether you got the fruit of patience when something requires patience, right? How do you know you got you know, the, the fruit of love in your life? Well, when something requires love and you find out how much you got and how much you don't. So it is with courage. We find out what kind of courage we have, but it gets built up in these little moments where we make decisions, where we either step in and put ourselves at risk. Remember, courage is I love you enough to put myself at risk for your benefit. That's, that's basically what courage is about. Performing small acts of courage prepares us for those moments of truth when the stakes are higher. Because they will, and the older you get, and the more responsibility you carry, and the more maybe people depend on you. You got a family now, or you have a business now with employees. You have, you know, whatever it is that, that we do. We have other people that are depending on us sometimes to have to put ourselves again at risk for the sake of everyone else. I remember when we lived in Boston, there was a fire at the Malden Mills. And uh, that was back in the day when polar fleece was a new thing. <laughs> and that just made me feel old. I wasn't around for the Kew Gardens murder, at least. I, I wasn't born. <laughs> but there was a fire in the factory. And I mean, it was big. It was like a 25 alarm fire. Whole factory burned to the ground. Hundreds of employees now out of work. Well, the owner of Malden Mills paid every one of his employees until they got the mill rebuilt. And... Um, and they were all employed again. He put himself at risk. Why? 
because he didn't view them as hirelings. He viewed them as people that he was responsible for. I own this business. You've depended on me for your livelihood and something just destroyed everything that we have built together. And so I'm gonna put myself at risk. I may be bankrupt at the end of this. There were no federal loan assistance programs being offered to him at the time. Maybe a little bit of insurance money to rebuild the factory, but not to pay all of his workers for six months while they were out of work. So he covered all of that for them, kept them employed, and the ones who stuck with him rather than bailing and going on unemployment helped rebuild it and they became another, a great corporation at the end of it. The point is for love's sake he exhibited the courage of being willing to sacrifice his own safety, his own retirement account, nest egg, whatever he had, rainy day fund, he was willing to put that all on the line for the sake of love. So living righteously when the culture is confused good and evil. That requires courage and their moments of truth. I thank God for every young person who has, for example, held on to their purity. You know, I sure didn't. I didn't have it as a value. So for me to, to go off in the things that I got off on, it didn't require any courage because I didn't have a value for purity. I didn't have a value for the future spouse that I would have who I belonged to that spouse before I even met her. So those that, that are willing to stand and be mocked for it, those that are willing to, I mean, I don't say you need to go broadcast, hey, everybody, I'm a virgin. You don't have to go around school and say that, but when the temptation moments come, when that aggressive one of the, of the opposite sex comes and start pushing on you like that, and you say, I'm sorry, but that's, that's gonna be for my wife. That's for my husband. I love you, and I'll be friends with you, but I'm drawing a line in the sand. That requires courage. And every time you say no, to those little temptations right now, courage is building up on the inside. The courage to say simple things. I mean, we are in a wild, woolly, wacky time right now. The emperor's new clothes, like I shared a few weeks ago, we're absolutely living it right now, and the pressure of the crowd is to call something what it obviously is not. No, that is a woman. No, that is a man. How do you know? It's written on every cell of your body, and I'm not gonna bow to the pressure to call something that is not as though it is, unless it's prophetic. That's living righteously, to live upright, not to go along. All of it, how many made it through middle school without caving to peer pressure? Anybody? How many of you raised in the church? You were raised with a foundation in Christ, the best your parents knew how to do. How many of you made it all the way through middle and high school without ever caving to peer pressure? Remember liars, you did? You didn't, what grade are you in? You're in college now. That's amazing. I'm proud of you. Now you notice you were the only hand that got raised, all three of you. God bless you. You were raised well. You're a man of courage. You're a man of courage. God bless you. For the rest of us, though. <laughs> I'm so glad that you jacked up my object lesson because... I'm glad to know that it is possible. Of course it is. I'm just saying that don't be ashamed if you have bowed to the pressure. I'm saying today, turn that behind you and stand for righteousness. Just live your life righteously. You don't have to make everybody else behave the same way. Just don't join with them in it. I remember just as a full-grown adult, I was in seminary at the time, and I worked at a moving company. All day long, I'm subjected to crude jokes. That water cooler, you know, the way men, the way men joke. Women, if you don't know, don't bother. Just don't even. 
It's there's some things you don't even need to understand or know. But the way men talk about women and the way men joke about things. I mean, I heard the crudest, most, I mean, even like outdoing anything I ever did when I was in sin and that's saying something. And I heard these things each and every day. And I remember in some days I felt this pressure because I'm surrounded by it. And you know, they cranked it up once they heard that I was a Jesus freak. Member, uh, member of the two-man God squad, as they called us at the moving company. Then they, it's like they went out of their way to find, hey, let's tell the stupid crude joke of the day in front of the God squad. And every day, and I remember fighting the pressure because after a while, you just get tired of resisting, don't you? That the pressure of conforming, the pressure to just fit in, the pressure not to be the outcast anymore, to be the only one that's standing for righteousness, that pressure is real. And I want to tell you right now, young people, it's not going to go away. Now I'm 20-something years old, and all day long when I'm not at the moving company working, I'm surrounded by people that are future pastors, and I'm still feeling that pressure to conform, to laugh at the jokes, even participate in it, because I remembered a few from back in my day. Now I could have fit right in. The pressure to conform is real. Those are the little acts of courage. Not laughing at the joke just to fit in. Not dressing a certain way, behaving a certain way. The whole pressure not to be conformed to this world is an act of courage. And I commend you for standing that way. And if you haven't, I urge you, don't sacrifice your conscience for the sake of fitting in. Be bold, be courageous, you be you. You be you with Christ in you, no matter what everybody else around you is doing. Speaking the truth when it may cost you a relationship, a job, or maybe you're standing in your community. That's another little act of courage that builds courage on the inside. There are those conversations we've been avoiding, as the book calls them. There are those things that we know, you know, the, the process Jesus gave us to deal with sin and harmful behaviors in the people that we're connected with in our lives. He said, when a brother sins, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. That takes courage. It takes courage. It takes not being like the cute garden bystander saying, well, somebody else will deal with that. But if it becomes manifest in front of you and a brother or a sister, a saint of God, behaves in a way that's untoward, behaves in a sinful way. It takes courage to go to them and show them their fault. And why do we avoid those conversations? It always begins with something like, well, I was afraid of how you would respond. I was afraid that you might disagree with me. I was afraid that you might reject me. I was afraid that you might fill in the blank. You know what they all have in common is I was afraid, fear, those moments that that confrontation needs to happen. I'm not saying you do it in a brash, mean-spirited way, but if we know there is somebody I love and my relationship right now is being challenged because of this behavior, I'm obligated to say something. I'm obligated to speak the truth in love. I'm not obligated to the response. I'm not obligated to what they'll do with it, but I am obligated to speak. I, I should have written it down, but there's a really famous quote um, by a man who grew up, who lived in Nazi Germany, he was a man of influence, and it goes something like, they came for the Jews, and I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't speak. And then they came for the communists, and I wasn't a communist, so I didn't speak. And then they came for the, the Negroes, and I wasn't a Negro, so I didn't speak. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak. And there is a, a need. We are those, the primary weapon that we have in the world is our tongue. 
And yes, there are times that we do need to speak the hard truths. There are times that we're not to say somebody, I hope somebody else gets to them one day, but be bold and be courageous and take opportunity in those small moments to with humility, with gentleness, with meekness, to confront the sin that we're surrounded by, especially those that we have relationship with. You guys all right? Just doing a pulse check here? Because you're very quiet and that's okay. I also, if you don't think that no matter how many years you're in ministry, it's still hard to be confrontational in your speech. Um, I I forgot how I started that sentence. But it's still hard and I think it should be. I want to just say something on this subject and whenever I share in the forgiveness, reconciliation process that it it shouldn't be easy to confront. In fact, I get a little nervous around people that enjoy confrontation. A little bit too brash sometimes. More than a little bit brash sometimes. Very unwise most of the time. Very much motivated not by love, but a desire to be right, a desire to make sure that you know how stupid you were for doing what you did. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about I love you and I love our relationship. I love the world that we're building around us too much to allow that to continue without sharing something with you that I've observed. Not my judgment of you, not my condemnation of you, but something I see. Speaking the truth may may cost you your job. Man, imagine being Nathan the prophet just saw this board, they do a great job with that in the, the play last night, but Nathan was the one that had to go, God revealed to him what David had done in his sin with Bathsheba. He had to go to his friend, the king, David, and confront him in his sin. And he, he did it wisely, he did it by telling him a story to make David feel what God felt about his sin. And once David said, oh, the man should die for what he did, you the man. I mean, the whole theater last night went, ooh, when he said that. That took courage. It took courage, but how many of you know that, that prophet, we don't know a whole lot else about Nathan, but that prophet had built up courage by every time he had to speak the word of the Lord. There's no prophet in the Old Testament that wasn't an outcast in some way, that wasn't like off on their own. New Testament prophets are not like that. They're a part of the body of Christ. It's a new day, it's a new covenant, it's different. But Old Testament prophets, and they were in the wilderness in rags, shouting at, at you know, whoever will come by in here. And Nathan was like that. But it took courage that was built up over time. Um, what else takes courage? Admitting we were wrong, which means changing our course, changing our beliefs. Especially, man, if you've built a life on 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of believing a certain thing, to say, you know what, everything that I once believed was wrong. That's why I say that moment we were born again, that required courage, because we had to be willing. And the older you are, the more years you've had to build up that wrong thing, that stronghold of belief, the more has to be torn down. Admitting that we were wrong requires courage. Why? Because I held on to this thing. Admitting we were wrong, even the little things, like we were just talking before service about the man at the pool, Bethesda. And Jesus came to him, he said, rise up, pick up your mat and walk. That man had to make a decision in that moment. Am I gonna admit that I've been wrong in my identity all my life? Because man, uh, you know, Jesus said, you know, do you wanna be made well? And the man just gave his whole story of all of his excuses of why he's still stuck by this pool. I mean, he was crippled, there wasn't much else he could do, but, but Jesus said, do, would you really wanna be made well? Then get up, pick up your mat and walk. That took courage for that man. 
He didn't know what was going to happen when he started. Man, these legs haven't worked for as long as I can remember. And now you tell me, get up and walk? That took courage, but he did it. And he walked out of that place holding his mat until some Pharisees came along. But that's a, that's a different story. Standing up to the bully. How about that one? This is where, this is like another level of courage now. Standing up to the bully. I'll never forget my elementary school bully. Elliot was his name. I'm pulling on 45-year-old memories to remember him. And Elliot still sends a shudder up my spine. And he was smaller than me. He was like that wiry, redhead, freckle-faced kind of kid that he was the small bully that had a lot to prove. But he had no problem punching people in the face. He would just do it. No matter how big you were, everybody was afraid of him because he's this wiry, you know, guy with something out to prove. And uh, we're all afraid of him. But when there is a bully, when there's somebody who is so insecure that they believe their only way of having status in the world is to put everyone else down, to stand up to that person requires courage. Now, you may not be the one to stand directly up to them. And look, if you're going to get beat up for it, be wise in how you do that. You know what the wisest way to handle a bully is? I mean, I know they got workshops in school and stuff like that. Do all that stuff too. But give them a gift. Find a way to love them. Find a way, not because you're afraid of them and you're trying to curry favor so they won't beat you up, but with a courageous, I'm not afraid of you, and I'm not doing this because I think maybe you'll like me if I give you this thing, but don't say these words, but I see how broken you are on the inside and why you treat everybody the way you do, and as an act of love, I'm gonna do something for you right now that I recognize you need. Man, it's amazing how hearts melt. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before noble people. A man's gift makes room for him. Pray for that one, get God's compassion for that one, and see if God will give you wisdom and insight on how you could go to that one and see if maybe you'll be the one to soften his heart. And it doesn't hurt to be friends with the bully because people won't mess with you anymore either. That's just a, that's a side benefit of it. But besides that, how about befriending the one that the bullies always seem to pick on? That's a good starting place. We're talking about baby stepping into courage now, right? Baby stepping into courage is after the bully has mistreated somebody before that one. Because, you know, bullying, just like child abuse, is something that goes from generation to generation to generation. If you were treated this way, you tend to treat people that way. And then the people you do that to tend to treat their people that way. So, how about the ones who are being bullied that you befriend them? You go out of your way to befriend that one who's probably an outcast, who's probably already inviting it for whatever reason. Be their friend. If you have high social status in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, that's like social collateral, let's call it that. You have social collateral. If you are a popular athlete, for example, if you're like the high school quarterback, you know, the girls are all, whoo, whenever you walk by and all of that, for you to go over and talk to that one in the corner who's been hiding in shame and fear, that carries a lot of weight. That carries a lot of weight. It carries a lot of weight to them to say that somebody who doesn't need to be their friend considers them worthy of their time and attention. That takes courage. I mean, I used to do that. I was the guy that did that. I wasn't the high school quarterback popular guy, not that part. But I used to always look for the outcast. I saved somebody's life in high school who tried to kill himself because I did that. And that was before I knew the Lord. I just felt bad for the kid. Asif Yusaf was his name. And, and we've, we've uh, befriended on Facebook and he's doing amazing now. But he was a, a Sikh 
So he wore the turban thing in school and kids made fun of him and, and all this stuff was going on in his life. He was happy, one of my first friends in high school and, and all of a sudden somebody handed us a suicide note at lunch that said, by the time you get this, I'll be dead, but thanks for being my friend. So this girl held on to like a dozen suicide notes until noon as Asif requested and then gave them to all of our friends. I was like, what is wrong with you? So I ran downstairs, I got to a payphone. I somehow found out Asif's father's workplace, got that number, called him, said, you gotta go home. You gotta help your son, he's trying to kill himself. And he got there just in time. Even before I knew the Lord, the image of God in us, the conscience in us, that love motivation, I don't want you to die. But I knew that because I'd reached out to him because I befriended him. You can do that, that takes courage. Couple more thing, one more thing, forgiving takes courage. There is something about holding on to unforgiveness that feels really good, doesn't it? Nah, don't you look at me like that. You know what I'm talking about. If it was easy, then we would do it before Jesus told us we had to. We would do it without the need for grace if it was easy. It's not easy. There's something very comforting in feeling like I am morally superior to you because you owe me something. You have a debt of sin that you owe me and the borrower is slave to the lender. That's the dynamic of unforgiveness, biblically. I believe that I am morally superior to you because you sinned against me and as long as I don't forgive you, then you are below me. I hold the moral high ground in this relationship and that feels good. So it takes courage to abandon that moral high ground and to say, I forgive you. I don't want you to be punished and I'm not gonna punish you for what you did to me. And um, yeah, so there's that. Forgiveness takes that, which is why I say that the cross is both the ultimate act of courage and it's the source of all courage to those who believe. It was an act of courage because not only did Jesus, who could have called angel armies to his side, the son of man hanging on the cross was witnessing principalities and powers and angels surrounding that cross. He could see into the heavenly realm. And he said to his disciples, well, you don't think I could call a legion of angels to help me right now? Do you really think I'm some sad sack martyr who's completely just being driven along by circumstance? I'm laying down my life of my own will. Nobody could take my life from me, don't forget that. So I'm willing to be vulnerable. I will lay down my armor, pull out my beard if you need to, put a crown of thorns on my head, scourge me. I'll take the whole world's sins. I will drink the cup down to the dregs of everything everybody else has done. That takes courage, huh? Man, can you even imagine? It's hard enough a load to bear to carry our own sin. You know the shame, you know the feeling of carrying this weight of, oh man, I blew it again. Imagine that a million billion times over for every soul who's ever lived. Yeah, I'll drink that cup. Why? For the joy set before him, for love's sake, for the bride he would have. On the other side of that, Jesus endured the cross. And he took courage, he set his face like a flint, and he, he allowed himself to be handled by sinful men, taking on the sin of the sinners who would crucify him. Because of that, because of that example, because of the fact that we have Christ in us, there is never a good reason not to be, whole, be, be bold and be courageous. Can we stand to our feet? I wanna pray for us. And I'd like you to just close your eyes for a moment before the Lord, I've shared some examples. I mean, there's a thousand examples of when courage is required in the small everyday acts 
I do believe some of us are called to exhibit courage in public places. That's where, like those are those moments of truth that we, that we live for. Those are those moments of truth that can shift a government, that can shift the course of a town or a city, that can shift the course of a nation. There are moments for many of us like that. But we build up to those moments with those little acts of courage that God brings our way every day. So what's it for you? In fact, I wanna, I wanna invite you to revisit the last time you shrunk back. Rather than exhibiting courage and doing what was right, you shrunk back for self-preservation. Take yourself into that moment for a second. Now, I'm not drawing you into that place so that you could wallow in shame and beat yourself up. In fact, stop beating up on yourself about it if you're doing that already. Just stop it. The chastisement that brought you peace is already on Jesus. You need to see that. He already knew you were gonna do that. He knew that moment. He knew Peter would betray him before he even did it. And he knew he was gonna restore him before Peter had a chance to betray him or to, to deny him rather. He already knew. Now I want you to invite the Lord in to that moment and say to him, would you give me the grace to be courageous the next time I have opportunity to exhibit courage? Go ahead and just ask him now, right where you are. Just ask him, make me bold. Make me courageous. Give me another opportunity. Have you ever prayed that before? I've prayed that so many times. When I miss an opportunity to share Christ with somebody, uh, I know some of you have this testimony. I missed an open door. Like uh, they were wide open and for whatever reason, either I was feeling apathetic that day or fear silenced my tongue and I've said to the Lord, Lord, would you give me another opportunity? And that perfect stranger I'd never seen before, there they are again. Or, or once or twice they showed up at church. Ask the Lord for another opportunity. Ask the Lord to make you ready for that moment that courage is required. Father, I pray that you'd baptize us with a spirit of courage, that you would make us those who never shrink back, those who can see beyond Goliath the giant of a God that stands behind that thing that's bellowing and braying and trying to intimidate me into silence. We are not of those who shrink back. We are those who press in for all the promises of God. Holy Spirit, we worship you, Jesus, and we just pray that you would keep us postured in heavenly places in such a way that it would be more difficult to run from an opportunity of courage than to, than to cower in the face of an opportunity for courage. Lord, would you come and restore our lives and set us back. Make us those who are salt and who are light, who are willing to be the one to rescue out of the lion's mouth, even if it's a lost cause, that we would not give up on those things that you've called us to protect. Holy Spirit, would you come and make us just like the good shepherd. As we look around, help us not to treat people as scenery, but open our eyes. Open our eyes to see the opportunity to rescue lives and to rescue people out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We reject the spirit of apathy as we reject the spirit of cowardice. And we say we are the courageous ones who are sent to bring the gospel of the kingdom of heaven to the uttermost parts of the earth. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I really exhort you to keep encouraging one another and so much more as the day approaches, whatever day that is. There are many days of the Lord 
And there's, there's other days of the Lord. There's a day of the Lord for the United States. There's a day of the Lord for Millersburg. There's a day of the Lord for our families. There's a day meaning of breakthrough. There's a day when God's gonna do something that even if he told us we wouldn't believe him, but it requires the people of God to take action in that moment. Just be watchful and be aware and believe God. He's gonna give a great and glorious day for each and every one. Amen? Amen. Amen. I love you guys. Have an awesome week.